Who are we? Why do we exist? In what ways are we creatures? And in what sense do we partake of the divine? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. On this podcast and joining us once again is our very special guest, Joshua Farris, a teacher, pastor, editor, author, blogger and podcaster. His specialities are on the soul, divine justice, the atonement and a whole lot of other things. And if you remember, he's just recently spoken to us about the soul. He's currently the Humboldt Experienced Researcher Fellow at the University of Bochum. He was a previous fellow at the Creation Project, Carl F.H. Henry Centre and the University of London, among other places. He's been a professor and lecturer at numerous universities. Joshua has written a number of books and articles, but we're talking today about his Baker academic book, An Introduction to Biblical Anthropology, Humans, Both Creaturely and Divine, which is a title I absolutely love. And it must be said, having read uh, this book, Joshua, this is a major work by any standards, in my humble opinion. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. A major work in, can we call it in the reform tradition? Sort of, really. Um, yes. Along the, I was yes. reminded a bit of Jonathan Edwards, but it's much easier to read. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. That was, that's hopeful. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the hope. <laughs> it was. It's, it's, it's a good read, and it's, but my goodness, it's a meaty read. So let's try and unpack some of it today. In a, now, in what sense are we both creaturely, then, and divine? Yeah, so uh, uh, let me step back a, just a little bit. Uh, I try to situate um, the various categories or topics of theological anthropology, the kind of broad topics, in the sort of biblical arc uh, narrative, but also with a sort of dogmatic lens, you might say, um, a broadly broadly reformed, um, broadly Catholic, lowercase c Catholic in the sense that most would consider it, um, viewing it through that lens. And so there are, um, the, these two themes seem to come up in every single topic that are addressed in the book, that we are in some sense, uh, as humans, we are both creaturely and divine in the sense, at least, that we are these two broad categories shape and inform how it is that we are to conceive of the human being. So there is much to say about the creaturely aspects of the human being that we see in, in the creation story and, and um, carried along in many passages of uh, the Old Testament and presumed in the New Testament. But there's also this um, sort of shape in the narrative of Scripture uh, as, uh, as the church has read the Scriptures and appropriated them and carried them along through church history of uh, this sort of uh, purpose of humanity or this end, you might say, or telos or um, a finality for the human, that humans are in their very core, uh, I think if you look at uh, Augustine and Aquinas in different ways, in, from their very core as soul beings, they are directed toward God. And so there's something about the nature of being human as an ensouled being that points us to God, but also in and through the person and work of Christ, we uh, are in some way united to God in, in some uh, sense. Um, and uh, I think that um, shape and is, is an important part of how the scriptures form a portrait of the human being. So uh, there's a lot more we can say about what that actually means and how uh, far you would take that. Of course, there's different proposals and there's some that go far 
too far beyond where the scriptures would take them and where the uh, the wider church historic, the Orthodox church would, would take us. But uh, there is this shape that um, informs what it means to be human, that we have this purpose as human beings to be united with God in some way, to participate in the life of God. As, um, as Peter says uh, in First Peter, that um, we are in some sense participants in, in the very nature of God uh, via Christ. And that um, via Christ, or as we are united to Christ, we are, in some sense, really united to God. And there's some profound way in which the life of God is the life of God in the soul of man. Um, and, um, and so the life that we're given in Christ through the Holy Spirit is the life of God. And the presence of God makes its way into the human in a similar way, at least uh, typologically, as we find in the Old Testament with temples, where God is present in the temple. We become, a, we become um, uh, temples in a sense that God um, is um, present to in and through Christ. Mm. Peter, I think, says we become partakers of the divine nature, which we're going to talk about later. I find that the most fascinating verse, uh, which I think your book makes, makes much better sense of than... Um, than, than any other I've encountered, actually, or most others I've encountered. Now, how is, Jesus, how is Jesus the way humans see God? Yeah, gosh, there's different ways. So in, in, in the New Testament, uh, uh, Christ is, is described in these rich passages, like Colossians 1.15 as being the image of God, and Hebrews 1.3, he is the perfect imprint of the divine nature. And um, in John 1, you see uh, something similar in, in relation to those passages where the Logos, which we know is identified with, uh, with the, uh, uh, the person of, of Jesus, Jesus Christ, that he is, um, he is the Logos of God, the very word of God made manifest uh, in, in the flesh. And so there's this real sense in which with all the talk about idolatry in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this sense in which Christ, even as um, human, is the revelation of the divine being, God himself. There's a profound sense in which that is true, um, and um, uh, he's not an idol, uh, but there's a, there's a real sense in which he is the full and final revelation of God himself manifest in the flesh. So, yeah, there, there's, there's much to say about that. But, yeah, he, um, that's important because it becomes an important lens, revelatory lens, for how we view human beings themselves and what their final point is in life, what their, their, their purpose is in life. Yes. Okay, then. Um, Jesus unites the creaturely nature of humanity with divinity. There's a start to the conversation. What does it mean, then, to be human? That's a big question. I only ask light, fluffy mm. questions on this podcast, Joshua. I don't, I don't bother asking the deep questions. Oh, that's I'll, good I'll leave question. that to others. <laughs> and, and I wrote a whole book on it, and I've been thinking about it. I should be able to give a very simple answer. What does it mean to be human? It, well, it means to be created created in the image of God. Um, I think fundamentally what uh, it means to be human is to be an image bearer of God. And, and then, uh, of course, we have to step back and think through the scriptural uh, data on uh, how the scripture develops the, the concept of God. 
in the the sort of uh, progressive unfolding of the image itself in in scripture uh, the image itself obviously uh, in the old testament this is often brought up isn't used a lot in old testament but it's there it permeates the whole of the old testament in key um key narratival ways that uh, later become informed by the the person of christ Yes, let's just come on and deal with this as take a step to the side for a minute, as it were, and deal with this business of the soul. I mean, we've dealt with this in the previous podcast, but I wonder to what extent has dualism, the belief in body and soul in humanity, been the default position of Christianity through the centuries? Oh, in what sense does dualism inform this? Well, it, to, what, to what extent has dualism been the default position of Christianity through the centuries? This belief in that we are both body and soul, both creaturely, I suppose, and in a sense divine. Yeah, I think um, we are both body and soul. That is, uh, that dualism is the default position in, in Scripture, and um, as it's appropriate in the creeds and the confessional statements, there's this common, even in in in, in the um, the prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, and the and uh, the Anglican churches, there's this constant usage in the um, the older books of Common Prayer of when it describes the human, it's describing the human as both body and soul, and so there's an important confessional heritage that carries along this common idea that places quite a bit of emphasis upon the um the soul of of humanity or the soul of individual humans as being the proper seat as as calvin would say the proper seat of the image of god it is uh not to say that there's no place for the image of god in the body there is and um but um as calvin says the proper seat of the image of god is founded in the soul itself and that's the place in which primarily the place in which god meets humanity is in is in the soul and um and i think uh, so i think i think that's kind of going on in the background and um there's some sense in which uh that's made sense of even in the new testament when we think about the reality of the afterlife and how the new testament portrays the afterlife as at least initially being an ensouled reality first during the disembodied intermediate state um which um uh which is then picked up in the resurrection in in terms of how we think about the very vision of god as as part and parcel of this union that we have with god we we will in some sense um see god in his uh in his nature whereas now as paul says we see through a glass dimly or darkly and we get traces or signs of the divine both in creation as well as in the scriptures, and more, maybe even more importantly, in the scriptures, as it um, attunes our, our cognitive faculties appropriately, as it attunes our our effective faculties. That sounds very Edwardsian. Our effective faculties in an in a way that orders us toward the divine being. Um, our soul is the thing, or the 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 place in which God does His work first in terms of uh, renovating the mind, as, as Romans um, describes, as Paul describes in Romans, and then um, also uh, uh, renewing the mind, but also renovating the heart and ordering the heart's affections toward the things of God.
Yes, yeah, so we talked a bit about the Imago Day, but I'd like to ask you a couple more things because it seems to be fairly central to your discussion. What is the Imago Day, and how do we understand it? And in double barrel question, I'm sorry. And in what sense are we as humans images of God? Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. Um, what's the first part of your question? Could you? Oh, let me more? break it down. I'm sorry. It's unfair to throw right, no. double question at you like that. What is the Imago Day, and how do we understand it? So my view of the Imago Dei that I try to spell out in the book, um, and I, I leave it, I, I leave some aspects of it open, um, but my view of the Imago Dei is that uh, each individual soul is an Im image bearer of God. And so you'll have other views that are out there that would say, properly speaking, the image of God is not primarily identified with the soul, as the ancient, many of the ancients would say, Aquinas would say, John Calvin would say, many of the reformed scholastics affirm, and pick up. Many would say that it's something else. It's like a function. It's something that we do, uh, like uh, the creation mandate. We take up the creation mandate. Or it's a relationship, a particular relationship. Of, of course, uh, one common view is that um, the prime uh, image of God is found in the, the context of marriage, as the, as, as the marriage or the, the conjugal union of male and female are the primary type of the very bride and, and Christ relationship. Others would say, um, even more recently, since uh, after modernity, they would say, no, 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 no. Uh, we need to get away from this kind of Greek notion of, of humans. We need to get away from uh, relations are ins um, insufficient, functions are insufficient. It's actually talking about the whole of humanity. And principally, it's talking about the person of Christ himself as being the image. In other words, we are not, on that view, um, principally images of God. Uh, we are only um, kind of types of the one image, which is Christ. And so you don't have a, a, a proper, properly speaking, you don't have an image till you get to Christ. On my view, I think, um, I think uh, it bears um, looking at these Old Testament passages carefully. I think they point to this idea that each individual is the bearer of the image itself. Each of us are individually bearers of the image of God, properly speaking. And it's um, the, the unfolding of revelation progressively that, uh, that, that unveils the fullness of that image in, in the person and work of Christ. And I, that's how I, I, I look at it. So we're image bearers, but there's a, there's a, um, there's a kind of, um, you might think of it like um, a common analogy that's used in, in some theological works is, the image is, is, is contained in the acorn, but the acorn doesn't meet or, or find its fullest expression until it bears fruit, till it becomes a tree and then bears fruit. And um, so I th that's, that's more the way I like to see of it. So there, there, there's a sense in which we are individually image bearers, properly speaking, but there's also um, there's something that is both, um, even apart from original sin, there's something about the nature of the image that hasn't flowered yet. Mm. Right. Okay. Let's come That's on. That's how next. I tend to. Yes. Do. Yes. Again, we've we've already dealt with this, but let's come on and, and uh, talk about it in a bit more depth. How does Jesus then link us with the divine? I think uh, there's a there's a couple of different ways in which Christ links us to the divine. There's one way in which we are united 
legally to the divine by way of Christ's work that uh, eliminates the sort of uh, the problem of original sin, original justice that's been um, undermined by original sin. There's, a, there's at least a legal or formal union that occurs because of Christ's work. Um, but I think there's a sense even prior to that in which uh, he unifies humanity by way of his representational work in the covenants as being the, the fulfillment of the covenants of the Old Testament and as uh, providing the representation um, of man to God the perfect representation of man to God in a way that the previous patriarchs of the Old Testament did not. And so, so I would say um, there's, a, there's a real sense in which uh, Christ, in his definitive work on the cross, uh, unites us to God in, in, in some sense. But even prior to that, he unites us to God by way of, by way of the, the way that Anselm describes his, his work as being a kind of cosmic... You, you might think of it as a kind of um, a, a cosmic reconciling of, of the world order in a way that makes us right once again in a, a sort of cosmic representative sense. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That was, yes. That, and that, right. that, yes. That, that leads us very nicely with about 10 minutes left. Of, it took 30 minutes to do your entire book. I mean, you know, we're going at a pace, but I think we're covering all the, the most of the major themes. That being said, you, I wanted to spend the rest of the interview, please, on the beatific vision and theosis, because these are two areas that I found absolutely fascinating in, in your book, and they may not be familiar to um, a, great, a great many people. And yet, they are, uh, my next question, uh, to what extent is the idea of the beatific vision present in the Reformed tradition? Because it is, isn't it? It's in, I don't even know how to say this man's name. Is it Turretin or Turretin or Turretin? Yeah, or? Turretin, I, well, that's how I learned it, Francis Turretin. Yeah, he, it's in Turretin, it's in John Owen, and it's certainly in Jonathan Edwards. I mean, I read Edwards' beautiful Absolutely. sermon on, um, on uh, uh, blessed, is it blessed are the peacemakers, where he deals, well, with, the, he, he deals yeah. with this beatific vision. Now, tell us all about that, because this is, in many ways, the culmination of the whole human journey, isn't it? Yes, yes. It, it is, it is, it is. And it's, it permeates, as you said, uh, uh, the whole of the reform tradition. Sometimes there's a tendency to think that the reformers got rid of it along, um, you know, when they, they kind of rejected sort of these Roman ideas. But there's this whole uh, rich um, typological sort of uh, development in the Old Testament about images and idol idolatry and how that leads to this... Um, this kind of typological representation of, of God himself. And we as the image bearers of God are the primary um, images or uh, idols in one sense, and it, you might think of it as a, in, a, in a broader cultic sense, that, uh, per, uh, that, that, that are, are, are designed or created by God to image God and to see God via uh, humanity. We are. Um, we have been chosen to do that. We have been. Um, we have been created to do that, and uh, perfectly. That's seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But so the beatific vision is is kind of situated in, I think, at least scripturally situated in that um, theme, which I think permeates the whole of the Old Testament, and it's intimately tied to this notion of the image of God itself. So. There's, there's this 
there's these related themes that, um, at least in the Reformed tradition, when they're thinking about the nature of humanity as being an ensouled being, that where the ensouled being, as the ensouled being, we have certain faculties and faculties that are ultimately uh, to be ordered in a certain way toward God. So both our intellectual as well as our volitional faculties are designed by God to be um, directed to God and ultimately to see God. So this notion of seeing, seeing God in and through the creation, uh, but not worshiping the creation, right, is is part and parcel of what we're to, to be about, what we're to do as, as human beings. There's a kind of secondary thing that's, but it's very prominent in the Reformed tradition, and that is the notion of hearing, the sense of hearing, but um, hearing as, as a kind, um, I, I, I liken it, and I think this is right, the way that many sort of talk about hearing. Hearing is a kind of seeing as well. Hearing the voice of Christ, the sheep will hear my voice and they will respond, right? And, um, and so um, the beatific vision is the purpose of man, but it's also somehow integrally related to this whole notion of how it is that we become united to God. I don't, I don't think I fleshed that out specifically, like which one comes first. I mean, I, I think uh, I suggest in certain ways that there are, there are ways in which we're united to, uh, to God by Christ, and that becomes the ground by which we will then later see God in his nature. So there is a, some sense in which our union is foundational to that seeing, that vision of, of the divine nature. And it's in and through Christ that we, we see that. So, so there is this complex relationship in theological studies about how they relate together. And I, I kind of, I, I gesture in certain directions and I kind of lay it out so people can think about it more carefully. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what's some of the scriptural evidence for beatific vision? This vision presumably takes place in heaven when we, we, we actually do see God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in some way. Yes. Yes. It's the most yes. magnificent vision. It, it, it really is beautiful. But yes. what's some of the scriptural evidence for it? Because there's quite a bit, isn't there? Yes, 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 there is. There is. So 1 Corinthians 15 describes the image of God bears in the resurrected Christ. We see that the allusions back to these images and idols in the sort of cultic sense in the resurrected Christ. Um, so um, when we're looking at Christ, we're actually seeing God. And so the image is intimately overlapping there. But also you see it in 2 Corinthians uh, 4. Um, Four five. Let's see. Let me make sure I get my passages right. Second um, Corinthians four five. Right. He is the image, uh, the perfect image of God. Um, and then in Second Corinthians uh, five, in particular, you see this theme echoing back to Christ being the image again in Second Corinthians five, which seems to describe a disembodied intermediate state because it describes the hope of of the humanity um, going to be in the presence of God, um, kind of sloughing off the 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 exterior, uh, the 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 clothes that we wear in this life, and going to be in the presence of God. Um, and there's Second um, Corinthians five uh, eight, I think eight specifically. It, it it uses the metaphor of seeing in the context of the disembodied state. So at least the way that many of the earlier interpreters, Thomas and Calvin, I believe Calvin also, and many of the Reformed, they would pick up on what Thomas is reading there and say, 
that the, the initial beatific vision is or does occur in the context of the disembodied intermediate state, where we go to be in the presence of God immediately as saints, we go to be in the presence of God immediately upon death, bodily death. And that's um, the initial hope of the believer. The final hope, obviously, is the resurrected state where, um, where uh, this union this participation in the divine nature continues. As, as Edwards would say, Edwards describes it as a kind of, we're constantly going up against this sort of infinity. We're participating this in a progressive eternal sense. It's ongoing and we're always approaching it in the, the next life, but we're never quite getting there because we're not going to be subsumed like in pantheism. We're not going to be subsumed in the divine nature and lose our identity, but we're always approaching it, even in the afterlife. And um, so there's something really exciting there. I think that's probably right. We, yeah. shall, we shall see him as he is, right, John. Um, theosis. Right. Now, this is another fascinating area that I think we've lost a bit in the, in the uh, Protestant tradition, haven't we, Theosis? Uh, yes. What do we make of passages like 2 Peter 1, where, where Peter says we shall become partakers of the divine nature? And what on earth do we do with Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul prays? Is it Ephesians 3, where Paul prays that we, sh that we will be filled with all the, or the Ephesians will be filled with all the fullness of God? Now, what on earth does that mean? Uh, yeah, what, what, I'm still trying to figure out what that means, actually. But I, I, I do think it means in, in some... Uh, um, literal sense albeit mediated and in a creaturely sense there there is a kind of um analogical i mean i guess analogical would be would be the right way to the right way to put it and so it's not clear that we can kind of put our finger on it exactly we're participating as we partake say in the in 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 the lord's supper and we're hearing the voice of God in the in the sacrament of the word. We are being transformed by the renewal of our minds. We're being renovated in our hearts and our affections as they're ordered toward God. We are experiencing the fullness of, 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 of divinity. Um, there, there's a sense in which I think those passages are, are um, there's a there's a there's a um, something almost uh, profoundly paradoxical about them that we remain creaturely yet we are full of the presence of, of of god and we become full partakers in 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 divinity albeit in a creaturely sense it almost sounds contradictory mm -hmm. but we retain our creatureliness paul never moves beyond the fact that we are still creatures and he always maintains the creature and creator distinction albeit in and through or mediated by the person of Christ as a as a divine human being where he brings those two natures together in some perfect way we then mediated by Christ partake in the divine nature via Christ himself mm. yes we don't become god uh, that's right no no final question we've got a few minutes left um i've just done a podcast on transhumanism and ai and all that sort of stuff what do we make of transhumanism in the light of theosis this fascinated me your discussion of yeah. this in your book at the end i think are aspects of transhumanism actually consistent with the tradition of christian theosis well consistent in the sense that there's not not all aspects. Transhumanism is a complex set of ideas, and it depends on who you're talking to. But um, I mean, you might say 
um, transhumanism is this idea that uh, through technological means, we become more advanced humans. We put on prosthetic legs and things of that sort, and that enhances our ability in this life, our, our, our finite creaturely abilities. I mean, if I didn't have, if I had my leg off from war or something, and I put a prosthetic leg on it, it would enhance my ability as a human. And so in a more, um, um, a, a kind of a more uh, profound sense, there are lots of discussions within transhumanism about taking us even beyond where we're at in terms of our cognitive abilities and in terms of being unified integrally with um, uh, machine type learning. Um, so the means itself, though, is th there's lots of discussions right now of people on the fringe who are talking about transhumanism as being a sort of replacement for a kind of Christian soteriology or deification. But the means are not the same as the mm. means by which we experience salvation, an ongoing kind of salvation as well, that we become progressively more like God. There's something completely different about it. Well, I think it's more the idea in, in the more extreme forms, if I can paraphrase and, and be simplistic about things, that we become like gods. Yes, Yes, and, and upload yeah. our brains or whatever into the into the cloud and just live on as immortal yeah. gods in some form, which is a bit dotty, I think. But however, uh. that's right. That's right, <laughs> and that's a different kind of um, conception of the world than 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 the way in which we experience God Himself. And 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 there's a kind of assumption being made there about the nature of God. That is that is fundamentally human in some way that that can through technology can by degree get closer and closer to God. But that's not that's not exactly what we're talking about. Obviously, when we're talking about the nature of deification, when we become more like God, it's mm -hmm. um, something I mean, altogether qualitatively different. Um, now, does it mean that in some ways we can enhance um, human uh, functioning uh, through technological means. I mean, that's a that's a more fundamental kind of ethical question when when it's acceptable and when it's not. Fascinating question, but uh, there is something qualitatively different about the being partakers of the divine nature and being um, through technological means being a more um, uh, uh, superhuman with superhuman powers. Uh, yeah. As the, as the Borgs are on, like, Star Trek or yes, something. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Star Trek comes to mind, doesn't it? And Doctor Who and all yes. sorts of things. Who was the character yes, in Doctor Who? who um, Davros, a ruler of the Daleks. That's right, who was always going on about wanting to be master of the universe and I have the supreme power in the universe and his creatures destroyed him. There we are. Yes. <laughs> He's... Thankfully, our God isn't that weak. No, no. A very savoury lesson about some aspects of transhumanist thought, perhaps. Poor old Davros. Anyway, Joshua Ferris, fascinating half hour. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, currently the Humboldt Experienced Researcher Fellow at the University of Bochum and the book from Baker Academic, um, which is a, a very deep read and marvellous stuff. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, an introduction to biblical anthropology, humans both creaturely and divine. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Joshua, bless you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, 
you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.